That familiar chant of collegiate pride might signal that you're in Nittany Lion territory. But journey back a couple of centuries to when real mountain lions roamed these parts, and the Nittany Valley would have echoed with other sounds. The chop of an axe, the grinding of a sawmill, the clang of a forge. These were the sounds of the iron industry that would put Center County on the map of Pennsylvania. And this is the story of how Center County's major industry in the 19th century gave birth to its most prominent institution of the 21st century. You might say that Penn State was forged from an ironclad agreement that was signed right here, dead center. Hi, I'm Katie O'Toole from the Center County Historical Society. Take a look around your kitchen, and chances are you'll find pots and pans, appliances, and utensils branded with names like Pyrex, Teflon, Tupperware, Hamilton Beach. In a farm kitchen of the 19th century, many of those items, if they existed, were probably made of iron. It was an essential material, dating back to the founding of the American colonies. And Pennsylvania was the premier center for iron making. William Penn had recognized the value of Pennsylvania's mineral wealth from his first visit in 1682. By the mid-1700s, furnaces in eastern Pennsylvania were exporting hundreds of tons of pig iron, as the unrefined iron from a blast furnace was known. Then came the revolution. George Washington's armies needed musket balls, cannon, bayonets, and swords. So vital was Pennsylvania's iron ore in the war against England that iron furnace workers were exempted from military service. After the war, the iron industry, like the colonists, moved westward. Pennsylvania's second furnace west of the Susquehanna River was built in a wilderness at the headwaters of Spring Creek between Nittany and Bald Eagle Mountains. That's right, dead center. And in fact, it was so central on the map of Pennsylvania that it was called the center furnace. It used the British spelling, C-E-N-T-R-E, because Noah Webster hadn't yet written his dictionary in which he standardized American English. When the county was established in 1800 from parts of surrounding counties, it was named for the center furnace because, well, because there wasn't much of anything else in the county except for some scattered farms and a mill on the big spring in what became Belfont. So why here? Because there are four ingredients needed to make iron. Iron ore is one, and there was plenty of that. It was high-grade and close to the surface, so it was easy to mine. The other ingredients? You need limestone, you need uh, wood to make charcoal to heat the furnace, and then you need water power to run the bellows to increase the amount of heat in the furnace. That's Lee Stout. If you're a local history buff, you already know Lee. For years, he was Penn State's archivist, and he's written almost enough pearls of local history to string a necklace the length of Center County. Like many of us who have lived here for a long time, Lee can remember the pre-interstate days when the county was equally inaccessible from just about anywhere. But not as isolated as in 1789, when Colonel John Patton arrived. He and a group of unemployed ironworkers, whose eastern furnaces had exhausted their resources. At that point, you would have Indian paths 
uh, but you wouldn't really have much in the way of wagon roads. So initially they would be coming uh, by horseback and pack mules and so forth, bringing this stuff in. Uh, gradually they would probably clear roads enough that uh, they could get in, uh, but they also brought in stuff by river, by stream. Patton was a veteran of the American Revolution. So was his partner, Colonel Samuel Miles. They probably acquired some of their lands as payment for their military service. But both continued to acquire additional acreage by taking out warrants or claims to land in the Nittany Valley. Miles remained in Philadelphia, where he had recently served as mayor when Philadelphia was the nation's capital. Patton left his comfortable life behind to put down roots in a wilderness. The furnace began operating in 1792. It was located on about 8,000 acres of woodland in the Nittany Valley. So you needed a lot of land, a lot of trees, which is why these relatively isolated places were perfect because they were sparsely populated and it was easy for iron masters or their backers, their financial backers, to acquire large tracts of land. I mean, we're talking hundreds, thousands of acres that they would need to have. From the day those pioneer ironworkers arrived, that woodland became a lot less woodsy. They cleared land to build shelters, the furnace, and ancillary buildings such as sawmills and waterworks. They cleared land to grow the food to feed themselves and their draft animals. But most of all, they cleared land to feed the hungry furnace. The figure that I've heard was that a furnace in blast would consume charcoal made from the equivalent of an acre of trees a day. A wood fire would not get hot enough and it wouldn't last long enough. You would be feeding wood into it constantly and the nature of the operation of the furnace was such that uh, uh, you needed a compact source of fuel that would burn hotter and burn longer. Each acre load of trees would be carefully tended by colliers, men who made sure that the wood smoldered slowly burning off the impurities until all that was left was charcoal. Other skilled workers, called founders, kept the furnace in blast, meaning they kept it fired up and producing pig iron. Then there were less skilled workers, such as the woodcutters, and the teamsters, who drove the horses and mules that hauled the timber and other supplies. Within a relatively short time, this collection of workers became a community. It's often been referred to as kind of a plantation economy. Not that there were slaves, because that's what we think of. We think of cotton plantations uh, or indigo plantations in the South, but plantation in the sense of self-contained community of workers who were self-sufficient. Initially, it would probably be a pretty primitive place. As time passes and more people come in. Um, you probably had an initial headquarters building uh, where the, the Iron Master, uh, and maybe he had a clerk who took care of the bookkeeping and finances and so forth. He might have a partner who was sort of the salesman, the field agent, who was going out and arranging contracts for people to buy the iron. Eventually there would be families, so there would be children. I think from what I've read, the average size good-sized working iron plantation would be around 100 people. Everyone on the iron plantation worked, 
The women did laundry, cooked, sewed, and offered room and board to single men. The children did farm work or helped load ore into storage areas. The success of Center Furnace soon attracted other entrepreneurial ironmakers to Center County. If their names sound familiar, it's because they're all over a modern county map. Streets, townships, villages, and cities bear their names. Philip Benner, one of Belfont's founding fathers, opened a forge and later added furnaces. So did the sons of Samuel Miles, and Miles Boggs, and Joseph Harris. They all made fortunes. One of the best-preserved examples today of a Pennsylvania iron plantation is at Curtin Village in Boggs Township. Roland Curtin established his Eagle Ironworks there in 1810. The site preserves the sense of the iron plantation as a self-contained company town. Workers made a living wage, but didn't have anywhere to spend it other than the store that was part of the plantation, the company store. On some plantations, workers were paid in scrip that could be spent only in the store. Since they were usually allowed to buy goods on credit, it wasn't unusual for workers to rack up debts that kept them obligated to remain at the plantation. It was a practice that carried over to coal mining towns and even into popular culture. You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Along with the company store, the ironmaster would have sponsored other services. An itinerant schoolmaster, for instance, or a circuit-riding preacher. When the furnace was in blast, there was never a day off. Even when it wasn't in blast, there was farming, millwork, and plenty of other chores to do. Life was pretty much defined by the boundaries of the iron plantation, because it was too darn hard to get anywhere else. If you were an iron worker at Center Furnace, you were, what, 10, 12 miles from Belfont, and, and in bad weather, heavy rains, or once the snows came, uh, it was really difficult. And even getting there by horseback might take you, you know, half a day. And who had half a day to spare? In other words, for iron workers, the term having a blast meant pretty much the opposite of what it means today. Life was better for the ironmasters. It was typical for the ironmaster to demonstrate his high social status by building a house that was fancier than the cabins inhabited by his workers and their families. That's what Roland Curtin did. And that's what happened at the center furnace. What probably began as a simple log cabin gradually expanded to become what we know as the center furnace mansion. It's the stately Victorian house at the corner of Porter Road and the Benner Pike. And today, it's the headquarters of the Center County Historical Society. The mansion began to take on its present appearance in the middle of the 19th century. By then, Patent and Miles, or their descendants, had sold off their shares in the furnace. It had been acquired by James Irvin and his brother-in-law, Moses Thompson. Irvin and Thompson were locals, they were among the first generation of Americans of European descent to be born in Center County. Irvin was born in Linden Hall, in the large gray stone house that still sits on Oak Hall Road. His birth came just five days after Center County was created in 1800. 
Thompson was born on a farm near what is now the Hills Plaza on South Atherton Street. He married James's sister, Mary Irvin, and in 1842 the couple moved into the mansion with their two children. Moses became the resident ironmaster. In time, he and Mary had six children who lived to adulthood. Their descendants still gather regularly at the mansion from all over the country for family reunions. The Thompsons moved into the mansion at the tail end of Pennsylvania's golden age of iron plantations. In the first half of the 19th century, Center, along with neighboring Huntington and Blair counties, produced as much iron as the entire nation of France, and half as much as England. These three counties were responsible for much of the industrialization of the young nation. But big changes were beginning to roil the iron industry, soon after the Thompsons moved into the Ironmaster's mansion. For one, high-quality iron ore from the Great Lakes region was challenging Center County's dominance. So like from the Mesabi Range in Minnesota or in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, they found really high-quality iron ore, uh, and they mined it, and they put it in boats, and they floated it down through Lake Superior, down through Lake Huron and, and to Lake Erie, and then began to transport it down to Pittsburgh. You know, and here we had iron ore right here, 150 miles from Pittsburgh, but it was cheaper to, to mine it and float it down the Great Lakes and bring it down by train to Pittsburgh than it was to bring it out of central Pennsylvania. It was the old lament that Lee Stout and I can remember. Too many mountains, not enough roads or rail lines. Another economic factor was the rise of coal. It was more efficient and less costly than charcoal. Large capitalized operations funded coal mines and coke furnaces, and a new system of ironmaking made the smaller, less efficient ironworks obsolete. You know, once they began to, to have that kind of industrial uh, metallurgical process um, that really put these small iron furnaces out of business. All the iron furnaces in Center County uh, and probably the forges, for the most part, uh, went out of business by the Civil War because they were, they were too small. They, they couldn't produce enough product to really be economically feasible. There continued to be iron made in Belfont, and Curtin Furnace actually was the last charcoal iron furnace in the country to still be in blast. It closed down in 1921, I believe, uh, when they had a fire that burned down all the, the outer outbuildings from the furnace stack. Moses Thompson survived the collapse of the iron industry because he had the foresight to diversify. For starters, all the land that had been cleared for timber was now prime farmland. Thompson was invested in agriculture, real estate, transportation, and banking industries. But for the purposes of this story, it was his and James Irvin's investment in higher education that was the game-changer. What spurred their investment was a conviction that science held the key to the future. People were beginning to come to accept the idea that there might be something to this new thing called science that could improve agriculture. And I think primarily what a lot of people were looking at were, were two things. One was sort of the analysis of, of fertilizers that people were beginning to sell, you know, sort of artificial manure, if you will. And people were beginning to put together various mixtures of various kinds of things and sell them to farmers. And a lot of it was just, was no good. It was 
either fake to begin with or just you know somebody thinking hey maybe this will work maybe I can sell it you know with good intentions but turns out to be totally unproductive and so farmers are are complaining that you know they're being sold this stuff and and it's frequently turning out to be not worth the money that they're spending on it. Farmers were clamoring for reliable information. The State Agricultural Society, which was made up of county ag organizations, concluded that farmers needed their own school. In 1854, the state legislature approved the creation of a farmer's high school and determined that its board of trustees would be made up of one delegate from each county agricultural society. Well, now that just wasn't going to work. Remember how hard it was to get to and from Center County? Well, there were plenty of other rural counties whose representatives were likewise located in isolated areas. How were 60 of them ever going to agree on a convenient time and place to meet? So that law was repealed. It was replaced in 1855 by a new law. It designated a board of trustees composed of a small workable quorum. They became the search committee for the ideal location for a farmer's high school. Center County's political elite, whose family fortunes were made in iron, lobbied hard to get the farmer's high school. None more so than James Irvin. He was one of the wealthiest men in the county. He was politically well-connected, having served in Congress. And he had a reputation for generosity, kindness, and devotion to the public good. So his contemporaries would not have been surprised by the offer he made. 200 acres of prime farmland, just next to the center furnace. He wrote to the committee, If we would add dignity to manual labor, if we would have labor held in honor by the community, we must associate it with science. In order to sort of cement the deal, uh, Center County uh, guaranteed a $10,000 donation to the uh, trustees. The guarantors of that donation were James Irvin, um, Andrew Greg Curtin, and Hugh Nelson McAllister. Hugh Nelson McAllister is a Belfont lawyer and farmer uh, who is the father-in-law of James Beaver, uh, and as a member of the Board of Trustees, Andrew Greg Curtin is from Belfont. Uh, and Moses Thompson was one of the people who signed on, pledged $350, I think, towards this $10,000. I think citizens of Huntington County also participated in this guarantee. They pledged this $10,000, and uh, that was a lot of money in those days. It was an enticing offer, but the trustees did not commit. They scheduled visits to each proposed site and considered its pros and cons. Some complained about the lack of running water at the Center County site. One detractor falsely claimed that the soil was poor. And then there was the location thing. Although that argument went both ways. One Center County promoter made this claim. The far absence of any temptations are eminent advantages possessed by this location meaning there really wasn't anything else to do besides study and work. Throughout the spring and summer of 1855, the trustees traveled to each location. Center County's turn came in June. The County Ag Society pulled out all the stops for the trustees, greeting them with much fanfare. James Irvin took them on a tour of the land he planned to donate, and he offered an additional 200 acres of land at a cost well below market prices. 
Then, according to an account by 19th century historian John Blair Lynn, the trustees and all the company repaired to the dwelling house of Moses Thompson at Center Furnace, where 150 persons were entertained by a sumptuous dinner prepared by Mrs. Thompson. It must have been a very good meal, because three months later the trustees chose Center County. The Iron Barons had gotten their way. Except that what happened next nearly destroyed the dream of a farmer's high school before it was ever built. It's known as the Financial Panic of 1857, and it's considered to be the first global economic crisis. A railroad bubble burst. The stock market plummeted. Banks and businesses failed. Some prominent center countyans couldn't fulfill their pledges of money to build the school. Although the panic didn't last long and most recovered, some industrialists lost everything. James Irvin was one of them. He was financially ruined in the panic. He fell from the very pinnacle of the iron aristocracy in Center County to a position in a Philadelphia naval yard. Yet somehow, despite his personal misfortune, he made good on his promise. He honored his commitment of land to the Farmers High School. I'm speculating here, but it probably didn't hurt that he had some politically well-connected folks on his side. People like Andrew Greg Curtin. The name sounds familiar, right? Remember his dad, Roland, the ironmaster who became rich from his plantation at Curtin Village? Well, Andrew had not followed in his father's footsteps. After graduating from the Belfont Academy, he got his law degree from Dickinson. He entered politics as a Whig. But the Whig Party was beginning to fray at the seams. So Andrew Gregg Curtin hitched his star to the newly formed Republican Party. In 1860, he became Pennsylvania's first Republican governor. Three years later, construction on the Farmers High School was completed. Students had started attending even earlier, studying, working, and living in the limestone building partially paid for by Thompson on the farmland donated by Irvin. That original old main building was torn down in the 1920s. Oh, and it was never actually called Old Main because... It was not old, and it was not the main building. It was the only building. So, so it was, you know, it was the college building, and of course it was a farm school, so they needed barns. So building a barn uh, to go along with this building, and then eventually uh, a president's house. Ah, baby steps. From a single building to a sprawling campus. But that's a story for another day. Meanwhile, come visit the Center Furnace Mansion. Moses and Mary Thompson did some fabulous things with the house. You can see for yourself on a docent-led tour any Sunday, Wednesday, or Friday from 1 to 4 p.m. The mansion has plenty of parking, and it's easy to find because, like this podcast, it's dead center. Today's episode drew from the research and writing of Lee Stout, Doug McNeil, Philip Klein, Sylvester Stevens, and John Blair Lynn. The theme music is titled Coffee Shop. It was composed by David Zestse, and it's licensed by Creative Commons. 